Well, good morning, all. As I said, we're going to run on Swiss time. We have some people here from Switzerland. I hope that they will report back to uh, Switzerland that we're doing it correctly. So I'm actually about 40 seconds early. So I'll use that time for a couple of quick announcements. The number one thing is uh, our colleagues are very serious. They say, please don't bring food and beverage in here because you get stains. And we're very proud of this building. And so just uh, they asked me to make a, a quick reminder. After the speaker concludes, there'll be an opportunity for discussion. And that's what these microphones are for. If there are people who find it very difficult to come down the stairs to the microphone, then um, uh, hold up a hand, and we will get someone to bring the microphone to you so that we don't want to disadvantage anybody in the conversation. It's typical that young people get up and they run like mad to be the first one. So try to be a little bit restrained and realize that the over 30 set slows down a little bit. Uh, and. Uh, so that everyone will have a chance to take part in the conversation. Uh, and then again, we're going to stop exactly at 10.15. So right now, it is 9 o'clock precisely. And it's a pleasure to introduce our first speaker, Professor Jeffrey Myron. So good morning. Thank you very much for coming and being here. It's a pleasure to talk to this group. Uh -huh. So consequential libertarianism is a particular version of libertarianism. Okay? Like every version of libertarianism, of course, it advocates for small government, for very small government. Um, but it does so in a specific way, a way that's different than what some of you have uh, learned about or discussed okay, up till now. Some of you, I'm sure, have also been exposed to the consequential perspective. Okay? And my task today is to explain this approach to discuss its implications. Okay? Now, a few things I'll say uh, just by way of background okay, before we get into the details or any specifics. Am I explaining consequential libertarianism, or am I trying to persuade you to be a consequential libertarian? Okay? I'm mainly trying to explain. I'm certainly trying to persuade you to accept the conclusions of libertarianism, but whether you find the consequential approach or the rights-based approach or any other approach to the small government perspective more persuasive, that, of course, is entirely up to you. My job here is to simply explain what this particular perspective is about. The one thing I want to say right at the beginning that will be emphasized over and over is what I find appealing about libertarianism and specifically about consequential libertarianism is that it's going to take a very consistent approach to a whole range of topics of policies. It's going to be for small government across the board, an obvious contrast to both the left and the right in the US and other places. It's going to talk about a whole range of issues. So we're going to talk about why small government makes sense, whether it's in the sphere of economics or the sphere of social policies or the sphere of foreign policies. I also think it's useful to just give you a teeny bit of background about how I came to be a libertarian. I think the seed was planted a long, long ago because my father, uh, turns out, was a libertarian. But I hadn't really attached myself to that view. I had fairly standard, middle-of-the-road democratic views until college when I took economics. And taking economics made me think about something we'll discuss in great detail, unintended consequences, the fact that incentives matter and good intentions are not enough. But 
That wasn't enough to make me a hardcore libertarian. It's actually Harvard that made me a libertarian. <laughs> in 2004, I wanted to visit another department. I was teaching at Boston University at the time. I called a friend at uh, Harvard, who was the chair of the department at the time, and said, can I come visit for a year? He said, sure. I said, what do you want me to teach? And he said, something about your stuff. Now, at that point, I had written a lot about drug policy, but I hadn't written about policy generally. I hadn't written about libertarianism at all. So I said, fine. And I thought I would des design a course about libertarianism, but it was an economics course. So it had to be about economics. It was in that department. And I tried to figure out how much of a case I could make for really small government just using standard economic arguments about costs and benefits and externalities and unintended consequences and so on. And so I wrote that, did that course. Okay, and what you're going to get today is basically a very shortened version. Uh, of that course, which I still teach and which gets two or 300 students a year. So when people tell you that Harvard is like super, super lefty and only one viewpoint is respected or allowed or all that, that's a pretty big exaggeration. Yes, of course, there are lots of lefties at Harvard, but there are lots of other perspectives too. Okay, so I'm going to explain what I mean by consequential libertarianism. I'm going to then, before really defending it, sort of give you an overview of what I will claim it implies are the appropriate policies for governments. And then in two parts, the first part this morning, the second part of my talk this afternoon, I'm going to explain why I think that perspective is right, why small government follows from this consequentialist perspective. This morning we'll talk about constraints and incentives and then a bunch of examples just to illustrate, but again, without really all of the, the gory detail. And then in the afternoon, focus on all the unintended consequences of government interventions. That's the crucial, that's the shortest possible way of saying why big government is bad. Um, uh, and use that to come to conclusions about what policy should actually be doing. OK, so what do I mean by consequential libertarianism? Doing a fair amount of injustice and being unfair and very broad brush, one can say that libertarianism comes in two main flavors, the consequentialist approach, which I'll explain, and the philosophical or rights-based approach. The philosophical approach argues that individuals have rights. They're frequently referred to as natural rights. Okay, and policy, therefore, should, is, should not infringe those rights. Okay, that's the philosophical view in a nutshell. Okay, add to that the fact that virtually all policies Okay, we'll discuss why this might be right as we go along, are going to infringe somebody's rights. Name any policy when we think of all sorts of rights it's going to impinge on. So therefore, the conclusion, if you start with okay, the middle bullet point, that we should respect rights, and then the second, that all policies do infringe on rights, then it follows that almost any intervention you can think of is unacceptable to philosophical libertarianism. So take that as just sort of one possible perspective. The consequentialist approach is going to look and sound very different. We'll talk as we go along about whether it really is different or just a different language for getting to the same conclusions. Suggest that if we're thinking about an intervention someone is proposing, this could be more national defense spending or more income redistribution or drug prohibition or uh, banning uh, gay marriage or whatever intervention you want to think of, okay? let's ask, okay, first, what is the problem that this intervention is supposedly going to fix? Okay? Is there really a problem there to be fixed? Okay? Is this problem big or small? If the problem is small, then of course you might guess that maybe it's not worth devoting a lot of time and energy in a big new policy to trying to fix it. Okay? Can private responses ameliorate that problem, whatever it is, how, 
whoever has identified it. Okay? I don't note I, I did not say solve the problem. Okay? That's one of the problems with much policy discussion. It asks for solutions when the right perspective is, which is the least bad way to go about this problem. Okay? But can this, uh, can private mechanisms do something about whatever is alleged to the problem? Can private charity help reduce poverty even if we don't have government redistribution? Okay? And then if you've accepted that there really is something that is not ideal, something we would like to be better or different, ask yourself, well, what are the possible ways we could intervene? Okay? There are many different ways you could intervene in any given instance. If you think that drug use or some kinds of drug use is a problem, one approach is to ban all drugs, production, sale, et cetera. Another approach is to subsidize treatment. Another approach is to impose a relatively high tax on the purchase and sale of drugs. Which of those, you need to think about all of them, not just assume that any one particular approach is the right approach. Ask very explicitly, will the intervention reduce the problem? You might, not in this room, but you might in some crowds get everyone to agree that there's some drug use at least which is excessive, which is bad, which we should try to stop. Okay? But you also need to convince yourself before you advocate prohibition of drugs that prohibiting drugs keeps those people from engaging in that undesirable drug use. And if it doesn't, then that's not a very sensible policy, even if you believe that government should be in the business of reducing drug use. And how much will it actually reduce the problem? Then perhaps most importantly, what do these interventions cost and what are their unintended consequences? I think most people, other than maybe some like uber, uber anarcho-capitalists, will agree that the world is not a perfect place. Bad stuff happens. There are things we would like to fix and make better, okay? but we have to recognize that our attempts to make them better might have a bunch of unintended costs and consequences. They might, might be that the treatment is much worse than the disease. Okay, so we th should think about all that before we actually okay, intervene. And then consequential libertarian says, if you've thought through all of those questions, you should intervene if, but only if, you're convinced that the whole set of consequences from intervening okay, is better than the consequences from not intervening, from laissez-faire, from just staying out. Okay. Similarly, okay, if you have a choice between two interventions, outlawing drugs versus a moderate syntax on drugs, you should choose the intervention which has the better set of consequences relative to the alternative uh, intervention. Okay. So consequential perspective at first blush is just saying, let's be reasonable and rational about that. Let's think about what the problem is, whether it's big, what are the ways we could try to fix it, okay, whether those things will actually fix it, and will they have unintended consequences, which are worse than any benefits we might get from whatever fix we manage to achieve. Okay. So one thing you should be saying to yourself is, gee, this is just economics, which it is. And Stated differently, this is just cost-benefit analysis, but with a very broad view of costs and benefits. Frequently, when people say cost-benefit analysis, you think they're only talking about items that can be measured in dollars and cents. I certainly want to expand the set of consequences we consider in evaluating any policy to effects on social norms. If you have government redistribution, does that affect people's incentive to take care of themselves, to work hard, have jobs, to be productive? Okay, that would be a consequence that some people might regard as important okay, and, and a reason not to have government redistribution. So I don't mean just strictly monetary costs and benefits, but essentially that is what I'm talking about is a broad-minded cost-benefit analysis. And then the next thing you should notice is that as with standard cost-benefit analysis, consequential libertarianism might not lead everyone to the same conclusion. If two different consulting firms or two different people in consulting firms do a cost-benefit analysis of whether Washington, D.C. should build a new football stadium, 
they can easily come to different conclusions. In fact, they probably will, depending on which side of the debate. Pay them to do the cost-benefit analysis. Okay? Um, you can easily imagine people doing cost-benefit analysis on some things okay, and getting different answers for all sorts of reasons, whether it's an individual, a business, a consulting firm, a government. So that can happen because people evaluate the evidence differently. And the evidence on all sorts of things that matter is, of course, incomplete. We don't know perfectly how much drug prohibition reduces, reduces drug use. You can also get different answers because people actually put different weights, indeed different signs, on particular effects. Let's say that we were so lucky as to have the perfect natural experiment okay, that allowed us to determine that outlawing drugs reduces drug use by 5.36%. Okay? So what's the reaction? Well, to some people, mostly libertarians, but a few others would be, gee, that's too bad. We don't want to reduce drug use by that percent because that means we're making those drug users worse off by keeping them from doing something they want to do. Whereas most people, of course, will say, well, at least we're getting 5.36% drug use reduction, and it's good to reduce private drug use. So different people might come to different conclusions, even if they fully agreed on the science, on the objective facts, because they attach different weights okay, to these different uh, outcomes. Okay? So thought about that, then your conclusion at this point, your reaction to what I'm saying so far, I think should be, gee, maybe consequential libertarianism, like a lot of cost-benefit analysis, really has no bite. It doesn't really tell us any answers, because it just says we should think about all these things rationally, but there's so much uncertainty about the facts, and there's so many different value systems out there in the world, that in fact, okay, you can get any answer you want from a cost-benefit analysis. Okay? And clearly, lots of people feel that way in many contexts from this type of approach. Economists are often accused of being able to get any answer that the relevant uh, law firm or consulting firm wants them to get. What I want to claim, however, okay, is that for what I will call for, for the moment reasonable assessments of the relevant facts and science, and for reasonable values about how we should treat different outcomes, whether we should regard increased drug use as a good or a bad, whether we should regard change in the distribution of income as a good or a bad, and things like that. That for a broad range of what most people would accept as reasonable values, the negatives of, of intervention are going to outweigh the cost in the vast majority of interventions that you can think of. Okay? And that implies that small government, smaller than we have now, is usually better. There are a few exceptions that libertarians tend to agree about that we'll discuss a little bit. When I say smaller, how much smaller? I think it suggests, if you apply this perspective carefully, thoughtfully, that we should remove all government adopted since the 90s, and I mean the 1790s. <laughs> so I'm not, talking <laughs> I, I'm not talking about minor changes. I'm not talking about little tweaks. I'm not talking about whether you know, we repeal a couple of things that were introduced in the last few years. I think that this approach, I will try to convince you, this approach leads to a radically different okay, size and scope for government. OK, so what I want to do next, before I sort of make those arguments in detail, is show you how much bigger government has gotten in the US okay, over the last several decades. Um, and so describe what government looks like, would look like in libertarian land, and compare it to what it looks like now. I haven't yet explained why I think libertarian land is a good place, is a place we'd all want to live. But I think it's useful to see a map of what that might look like uh, before we discuss all the analysis. OK. so. These are just some charts that give you some, is readable? OK. Um, this first one is government expenditure as a GDP. 
And it's pretty fascinating because you can see that until World War II, it's really low by modern standards, okay, under 5%. Okay, and it basically only goes up in wars. Okay, so you can see uh, the Civil War very clearly. You can see World War I very clearly. Then you can see a bit of, I guess it's not, uh, you can see a bit of, a, of an increase here in the Great Depression. The New Deal policies start to move government expenditure up relative to history. Then World War II, of course, leads to this huge spike okay, in government expenditure. But it's only then that we start to get these persistent and growing high level of government expenditure relative to GDP coming from entitlement programs, coming from Social Security starting in 1935-39, and then from Medicare, Medicaid, okay, starting in the mid-1960s. You get a similar story about the size and scope of government over time if you look at tax revenues. So this is roughly similar to what we see for expenditure, although, of course, on average, a bit less, consistent with the fact that we've been running deficits on average, and so we have a growing uh, debt. But taxes have gone up to finance the wars, then taxes went up to help finance uh, the New Deal, and then taxes have had to go up a huge amount to finance since the late 30s and early 40s to finance Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. And the different lines give you the totals, the state, the federal. Uh, another picture that's sort of interesting, just to have some perspective, this one only goes back into the uh, late 1930s, is government employment okay, relative to GDP. Okay, if we could go back earlier, the numbers would, of course, be even smaller, but there don't seem to be accurate data. Government employment is not trending up nearly so much as government expenditure over time. Okay? Indeed, the red line, the bottom one, that's federal, you can see is actually going down and down and down. So despite sort of libertarian concerns that the size and sco scope of government is growing out of control, as measured by the number of federal employees, okay, it's actually you know, low by post-war standards, okay, under the Obama administration, under the Bush administration, under every administration. So how do you reconcile that with the fact that we see expenditure going up and up and up? It only takes a couple of people to write a lot of checks for Medicare, Social Security, Medicaid. In fact, it might not take any people. Computers are doing most of it. So employment has not needed to increase, even though the scope of government in terms of expenditure has increased enormously over the post-war period. In the um, uh, state level, the yellow line, you see that there was a big increase in the early part of the post-war period. That's the growth of state and local government, uh, expansion of public schools and things like that. But even that has actually moderated a bit over the post-war period. So again, it's not government employment that's the huge and rapidly growing problem. It's government expenditure. OK, again, just to give you some sense of the size and scope of US government and other countries' government, this graph shows you taxes as a share of gross domestic product. The US, for all our complaints, okay, is relatively low. We're down there for federal taxation at 25.4%. The typical, the OECD on average is more in the mid-30s, and many countries in the OECD are way above that, even above 50% tax revenue relative to GDP. This similarly shows you the size of government, okay, uh, government consumption expenditure relative to GDP. The U.S. is relatively on the mild side. Where'd it go? Here. Relatively low, but um, in lots of countries, okay, substantially above that. So that's just to give you some sense okay, of the magnitudes and the history, how big we are relative to a century or two ago. 
Now, being more specific, what would the federal government do in libertarian land? It would basically do one thing. It would do national defense. And in terms of dollars spent or people employed, any metric, national defense would be far and away the biggest federal government program. There, of course, be a few other things the federal government would do. It would have to collect taxes to pay for the military. It would prosecute a few crimes that are inherently federal crimes, like treason. Okay? It might staff some embassies and some consulates. It would negotiate a few treaties. Maybe, although libertarians are pretty divided about this, uh, enforce patents and copyright, other intellectual property. Okay? But that's it. Okay? So there's really almost no federal government in libertarian land. It would be, look like the 1790s, maybe even less than that. Okay? So remember there was a question in the debates uh, four years ago, or four or eight, when Rick Perry couldn't remember the three departments that he wanted to eliminate in response to one of the questions. Okay? I think the most important part of that debate was when they asked Rand Paul that question. Okay? And he should have said, instead of naming the three he named, he should have said, what, I only get to eliminate three? Okay? That would have been much more consistent with his being a libertarian. Okay? But indeed, in libertarian land, we won't, don't need any of this stuff. Okay, there's no Medicare, there's no Medicaid, there are no energy subsidies, the government isn't collecting weather data, which is part of what the Commerce Department does. There's no No Child Left Behind or Pell Grants or any of the federal funding for education. Okay, so you could get rid of virtually all of that. Of course, you would probably have a Department of Defense or at least the main activities under department. You would have a very, very small Department of Justice to prosecute people who broke the few, very small number of federal laws, et cetera. Um, and maybe a State Department with a few embassies, and since there's some expenditures and some taxes, you need a Department of Treasury. But you really don't need anything else, okay, in libertarian land. Likewise, the whole alphabet soup of federal agencies, okay, those of you who are not, oops, sorry, a little too fast. Those of you who are not from Washington are not, maybe can't even remember that what some of these are for. The Federal Emergency Management Administration, the Interstate Commerce Commission, the Consumer Product Safety Commission, this is a teeny fraction of the whole list. Okay? All of that is gone because the federal government is not doing any of that stuff. Now, what about state governments? An important and interesting part of US okay, government is that we have this federalist system, at least in principle. Okay? So states are responsible for certain things that the federal government doesn't get involved in. And the libertarian land view is the state governments would operate criminal justice systems that enforce laws against murder and theft and property rights in roughly the way they do now, with some important caveats. Okay? But they would certainly not be enforcing certain laws that exist now, such as those against drugs, gambling, prostitution, some, many gun laws, things like that. There would plausibly be other government activities, indeed at the local level, such as fire protection, Hardcore libertarians, anarcho-capitalists can, of course, argue that the private sector would take care of fire protection. You don't need a government, uh, a city fire department. But, you know, conceding that we can't get everything right away. Maybe there's some local fire protection. Some libertarians will argue for government role to alleviate poverty via something like a negative income tax, especially if it were left to the states rather than the federal level. Maybe there's some subsidies for some kinds of education, at least through, for say, K through six. Maybe government plays a role in building and maintaining highways, but that's all really small okay, compared to what state governments do now. A different way to think about libertarian land relative to current government is to say what would be legal in libertarian land. So at the federal level, there would simply be basically no criminal law. Okay? Minor exceptions, such as tax fraud, 
okay, a few miscellaneous things, but all the white collar crime, the Securities and Exchange Commission, uh, for example, would not exist. It would handle by private contracting and lawsuits. Okay? At the state level, we would still have the criminal law okay, for the standard crimes, but as I mentioned, much less than now, okay, most of the laws that states are uh, enforcing are also absent in libertarian land. Finally, think about regulation. There's so many different things that governments do now that it's easy to forget. So this is just an attempt to remind you how big and pervasive government is. We have protections for unions, we have antitrust laws, we have prohibitions on insider trading, environmental policies, worker compensation. The list goes on and on and on and on. None of that exists in libertarian land, meaning I want to argue that if you apply the consequentialist perspective, you conclude that all these policies do more harm than good, and so you wouldn't want to have them. Okay, so what have I said so far? We've discussed what consequential libertarianism is. I've told you what conclusions, what size and scope of government I think it would lead you to, basically 1790, minus the Alien and Sedition Acts. Okay? Um, and, but I haven't explained exactly why consequential libertarianism is convincing, why you should think it's, it's a good approach. To address that, uh, I will need to talk about economics. For those of you who took and hated economics in college or wherever, I apologize. I will try to make it short and sweet and more interesting than whatever you took long ago. Okay, so what is economics? Okay. It's really, really simple. It's the combination of one fact and one assumption. Okay. So what's the fact? The fact of economics is that resources are scarce. There's a finite amount of stuff. There are constraints that say you can only do so much of any given thing. So there are only 24 hours in the day. You cannot both work for 12 hours, sleep for 12 hours, and go water skiing for 12 hours in a given day. Because there are only 24 hours. And the laws of arithmetic say that 12 plus 12 plus 12 is, not equal, you know, is, is more than 24. At any moment in time, you have a given amount of wealth. You can only buy so much stuff at any moment in time, because that's all the wealth that you have. You can only save by the amount of income that you received. Okay? If you're talking about a firm, Firms have a given number of factories and workers at each point in time. They can only produce so much stuff okay, in a given time frame. Okay? So these are basically just laws of arithmetic. There's nothing remotely controversial about them, even though politicians like Bernie Sanders try to deny them all the time by claiming we could add 12, $18 trillion worth of entitlement spending okay, and it wouldn't uh, destroy the economy. Okay? This is just saying there's a finite amount of stuff and we have to think about how to allocate it. The assumption is that people have goals, and I mean people in all of their roles, whether they're running firms or whether they're working in the government, whether they're making decisions for their own uh, welfare, their children's welfare, or whatever. Okay? They have goals, and they pursue these goals as best they can, given the constraints. Okay? So I haven't said they maximize utility. That's a phrase you'll hear a lot in the economics sort of setting. You don't need to be that specific, or you don't need to be that hardcore, because people might have lots of objectives other than just their own utility. They might be altruistic. Okay? They might make a lot of mistakes, but that doesn't mean they're not trying to enhance their welfare. This just says they kind of know what they're trying to accomplish, and they're making some effort to accomplish their goals subject to uh, the resource constraints, the budget constraints that they face. Okay? They do their best they can, given the constraints. The crucial thing about that is they combine that fact with the assumption 
it says if the constraints change, behavior is going to change. Because if people were doing the best they can subject to the constraints, that is up to the point where the constraints were binding, then if the constraint loosens, you maybe can do more stuff. Okay? If you were spending as much as you wanted given your wealth, but your wealth goes up, you can spend more stuff. If you were spending a certain amount and your wealth goes down because the stock market crashes, you can spend less. Okay? So your behavior is going to have to change. Even if your behavior changes randomly, it's still going to have to change when the budget constraints uh, change. Okay? And in most cases, if you try to do things purposefully, if you accept that assumption, the exact nature of what people will do will change when the constraints change, which can be summarized by saying that incentives matter. If people are facing a constraint that the price of one good has been raised a lot by taxes, they will tend not to pur purchase that good because they face a new incentive not to purchase that good as a result of the tax effects. And the crucial constraints we want to think about as affecting behavior are those that come from policy. Okay? So very simple standard examples of the economic way of thinking, of what you get from combining this fact with this assumption. Consumers are going to buy less of a good if taxes raise the price of that good. Okay? There's nothing really, there's nothing subtle or, or deep about it, but it's fundamental to thinking about which policies make sense, as we'll see in various examples. Firms are going to reconsider where they locate if taxes on their profits go up in one state or country relative to some other states or countries. So if you have high corporate income taxes in the US, firms have an incentive to locate outside the US. Okay? And you know, railing against them for being evil or whatever is just silly. They're simply responding to a standard objective and constraint uh, that they're faced with by policy. Likewise, politicians are going to change their positions on the issues if public opinion changes in that direction, because politicians are also responding to the constraints and the incentives, their objective is to get elected, and the incentives are to try to uh, have policies that lots of voters approve of. OK, so just as one last example of that, here's a famous graph that's sort of useful to know about uh, in its own right, but that illustrates this point quite well. This shows you on the horizontal axis the economy's tax rate. This is a super simplified view in which there's just one tax rate that applies to all income. It shows you on the vertical axis the amount of tax revenue the government collects. So if the government imposes a zero tax rate, how much revenue does it get? Zero. If the government raises the tax rate, it's probably going to get okay, more revenue. Okay? But at some point, if the government keeps raising the tax rate, people are going to respond in a strong way to the incentives caused by the tax rate, which says, I work for an hour and make $20, but I only keep $10 of that. Maybe I'm not going to work that extra shift, that extra hour, because I'd rather have a leisure time than spend an hour to only make $10 after tax. And as the tax rate gets bigger and bigger, that negative incentive on people's work effort or saving effort or whatever gets stronger and stronger, so the government actually starts getting less revenue. And even if the middle part doesn't seem totally intuitive, you can start from the other point and say, well, what if the tax rate's 100%? Then nobody's going to do any, at least no reported, work or income. Because if the government's going to take it all, why would you ever report any income, do any above ground uh, effort or work? And so it's got to look like that because we pinned down the two endpoints, and it looks something like what I've shown in between. That's, again, just a way of saying, illustrating that incentives matter, okay? that people are going to respond uh, when policy changes. Okay, so now I want to talk a bit about unintended consequences. UIC, you'll see a bunch of the slides, means unintended consequences. 
So the economics I'm using simply to get to the conclusion that incentives matter, and that raises the possibility not only of the desired incentives, okay, clearly when politicians impose policies, okay, say they impose a minimum wage, they're trying to affect the incentives of people to want to work at those minimum wage jobs, but there also can be other incentives that are created, such as the employer not to want to hire people if they have to pay a higher wage. So there's always the possibility of unintended consequences, not just the intended consequences. Policies always have stated objectives. Many of the objectives of policies, even the ones from politicians we would strongly disagree with, might sound good. It might be nice to eliminate ISIS. It might be nice to have everyone be able to afford to go to college on somebody else's nickel and all those crazy things politicians promise. But okay, we have to recognize that the attempts to achieve those objectives are going to have consequences that may be much worse than anything uh, we thought was going to happen. Because these policies change incentives in ways that advocates of the policies don't necessarily want, and in many cases, uh, did not anticipate. And that's the crucial reason why interventions are problematic, because the treatments are often worse than the disease. OK, so let me give a bunch of examples of that. So one of my favorites is the Endangered Species Act. Okay, the Endangered Species Act says that Congress, that the Interior Department becomes aware of species that might be driven to an extinction. It puts them on this list. And if a species is on that list and you alter or destroy property okay, on which an endangered species exists, lives, okay, then you can be fined, jailed, so on and so forth. Okay? So you can't develop your property if an endangered species has been found on it. So you, the goal, the objective was to cause people not to develop those lands. But there's another objective, incentive, that's created by the Endangered Species Act. Other than not tearing down your trees because you know that there's a listed species like the northern spotted owl in your trees. Cut the land down now. I mean, excuse me, cut the trees down now before the government has found an endangered species on your land. Okay, because then Government can never find an endangered species on your land. You cut down all the trees, there are no more owls. Okay, you bulldoze all over some swamp, then there's no possibility the government finds some rare salamander that lives in that swamp and tells you you can't ever develop that land. Might sound completely speculative, but there's a paper by a very well-known economist, University of Chicago, that looked at the data and found exactly that. People preemptively okay, developing their land okay, in order to avoid being found with an endangered species on their land. Okay, so that may or may not tell us that overall the Endangered Species Act is a terrible idea, but it certainly illustrates the possibility of unintended consequences. A more mundane example is soak the rich tax policies. Those are meant to take money from the rich and be able to redistribute them to other people. But of course, if you have very high tax policies, you might drive rich people to keep their accounts overseas, to in indeed move to other countries, okay, or to work less hard. So you may have less revenue available. You may not, in fact, soak the rich at all. So the unintended consequence okay, is actually to drive a lot of productive people out of your country. Okay, that's presumably not the stated goal or the desired goal, but it is a consequence. Uh, that, that, that might occur. Corporate income taxes, as we discussed, is similar. I'll skip that one for the moment. Okay, minimum wages and rent control are very familiar. Okay, minimum wages, you cause fewer people to be unemployed. That's the unintended consequence. Rent control reduces the incentives of landlords to build buildings and charge market rents because they're not going to be able to make a decent return. So instead, there are fewer apartments, and apartments become more expensive as a result uh, of rent control. 
Another one I really like is high stakes testing and accountability. All the young people in the room have all gone through those tests. Okay, lots of the adults in the room have had their kids go through those tests. You take these things in high school in order to show that the school system is performing well. It's meant to get okay, poorly performing teachers and principals in schools to work harder and do a better job trying to educate instead of just having recess all the time. There's a little bit of evidence that for some schools it works that way. Okay? But it also, even for those schools, okay, has other effects. It encourages schools to tell the kids that the teachers think are going to do badly on the test to stay home the day of the test. Okay? There are well-documented examples where teachers have systematically called selected parents and said, I think you know, Johnny shouldn't come to school tomorrow because blah, blah, blah. Okay? There are examples where teachers, who sometimes get big rewards if their classrooms make a lot of, do well on these tests, Teachers have gone through the Scantron sheets, the little bubble sheets with all the ABCDs filled in, and they systematically changed them to the correct answers so that their classroom scores well on the test, and that helps the teacher get a bump in pay or something like that from the high stakes and accountability system. Again, that's not what anyone intended, but it's a consequence which, if one had thought about it, was almost inevitable, and it's certainly one that people don't want. Another example of the unintended consequences. Okay, cap and trade or carbon taxes. Forget about the difference between those two things for the moment. Let's call it carbon taxes. The goal of people who advocate them, say for the US, is to okay, reduce the use of carbon, okay, and therefore reduce the amount of CO2 we're letting into the atmosphere and reduce global warming. Forget about the science, whether it's convincing or not for a moment. What's going to happen if we tax carbon heavily, say, in the US? Well, then likely a lot of it will move to other countries. In particular, a lot of it will move to countries like India and China, which use coal much more intensively than the US to produce energy. Coal is much dirtier, much worse at producing CO2. So by virtue of having a high carbon tax here, we may actually increase the amount of carbon emissions. Again, not the intended goal, but a, a, an effect, okay, nevertheless. Flood insurance subsidies encourage people to live in areas that flood a lot. Okay, so then more people are victims of floods. Okay, that's kind of crazy. The minimum legal drinking age okay, is supposed to keep uh, 18 to 20 year olds from being in, in traffic accidents, but incentivizes people to drink uh, in more uh, unbeknownst, uh, hidden ways, and therefore may be contributing to binge drinking because it's harder to get access in the open, so 18 to 20 year olds have to avoid that. They drink in secret and may lead to worse health effects from uh, consuming alcohol. Okay? The estate tax okay, has enriches lawyers and accountants, whatever it does to the distribution of income. That's not an intended consequence. That's something that the people who advocate estate taxes would presumably oppose, but it's an effect nevertheless. Almost every libertarian's favorite example, the Food and Drug Administration, kills people. Why? Because it keeps drugs that are effective off the market for a long time while they're waiting to get approved. Okay, and so even if the FDA is keeping some bad drugs off the market, it's simultaneously keeping a lot of good drugs off the market for extended periods, and that's going to lead to a worse health rather than, than better health. Wage and price controls okay, famously led to companies trying to compensate their employees using uh, benefits such as health insurance because the health insurance benefits were not covered by the wage and price controls during World War II, now the US has a system where most people get their insurance via their employers in a subsidized way, and that plays a huge role in the distortions <coughs> excuse me, um, in the US healthcare system. OK, so point for the moment is not to say that all these policies are necessarily bad, although I do think they're bad, but 
to just say one thing you should think about in evaluating any of those policies and any others is there are lots of consequences that happen that were not part of the stated objectives and that might not even have been obvious when you created the policy in the first place. There are always going to be things you don't think about at all, and you should be worried about those. Uh, and that might be a reason to not intervene, okay, even if it seems as though the intended consequences are better than the known costs. They're going to be unintended costs. So let me illustrate um, the consequential approach as the main thing I'm going to do before I wrap up today, just to give you a little bit more flavor, sort of how it goes, and then we'll get into other aspects of the nuts and bolts in the afternoon. So drug prohibition I've talked about quite a bit. The consequentialist approach there is to say, let's forget about whether you think drug use is a good thing or a bad thing, whether you think government should be in the position of encouraging or discouraging drug use or just being neutral. Regardless of your view on that, drug prohibition has huge negative consequences of creating black markets, which are violent. It creates quality control problems, so drug users get sick more often. It leads to racial profiling and stop and frisk and all sorts of civil liberties infringements and a huge prison population that's predominantly African-American. So drug prohibition is a horrible policy. Okay, has all these negative effects unless you have an incredibly strong feeling that reducing drug use is a crucially important goal for government. The consequentialist line on the Iraq invasion said, maybe Saddam had weapons of mass destruction, maybe he didn't, maybe he was a threat to the US or its allies, maybe he wasn't, but we should have thought about the fact that any attempt to take over another country to install democracy in a place that had the conditions Iraq had was almost bound to fail based on past experiences. It was likely to have these huge costs even if it might have had some chance of having some benefits. And of course, the case that those for those benefits themselves was weak. Okay? It was pretty clear by the time he went in that he didn't have the weapons of mass destruction. Okay? But okay, uh, even if you would believe that, it probably still didn't make sense to invade. On gay marriage, the consequentialist approach just says, let's step back and think about this from first principles. Why is government in the marriage business? Why does it have to do anything with marriage? Why doesn't government just enforce contracts? And some people want contracts about the fact that they live in the same place as another person of whatever no gender, doesn't matter, it's two or three or 20. Okay? And they might want there to be a policy in place that says who gets the property, who gets the kitchen table if the two people who are sharing that apartment decide to split up. People have kids, and it might be good for the government to have policies about who are the legal guardians of those kids Okay, whether those people stay together, whether they're ever together, other than obviously the conception, whether they want to call themselves married or not. So laws about guardianship and children and, and adoption and so on make sense. Okay? But you don't need to use the word marriage to have those. People might want to have laws about inheritances so that there are clear rules that say, what happens to your property if you die? If you have a will, if you don't have a will. But you can write all those laws, and we have all those laws without ever using the word marriage. So the consequentialist perspective says, in libertarian land, government is just not in the marriage business at all. Okay? And if it's not in the marriage business at all, then all the controversy over whether to allow same-sex marriage is, of course, moot. Now, given that, the libertarian position is that given government is, is in this business, and that doesn't seem likely to change, it has no basis to discriminate against some people who want the service of providing a marriage contract versus others uh, amongst those who do and do, uh, who want that contract, and therefore it should equally supply it to same-sex couples and opposite-sex couples. But the really pure consequentialist perspective just says, get government out of the marriage business entirely. Abortion I put on a list because it's one where there is not a single 
okay, libertarian view. Libertarians, taken broadly, vary quite a bit in their attitudes toward abortion. But I'd suggest the consequentialist perspective gives you at least a starting point for discussing it. Okay? If you think that it makes sense to have the government in the business of rounding up doctors and women who provide or have abortions okay, and putting them in jail or subjecting them to huge financial penalties that would actually really discourage the practice okay, makes sense, okay, then you might want to defend having abortion because you think that Okay, uh, a an unborn fetus is a life. If you think that that prospect of having the government do those activities of putting people in jail okay, over this okay, is never going to happen, never be done consistently, is going to be very arbitrary, then you might be led in the other direction. You also, if you take the consequentialist perspective, don't have to decide whether the fetus is a person okay, or whether terminating a pregnancy is killing. Why? Because the consequentialist perspective in any perspective accepts killing by individuals and by government in a few circumstances. Capital punishment, self-defense, okay, accidental killings that occur in, in the course of war, and so on. So even if you accepted that a fetus is a person, you could argue, if you wanted to think about it consequentially, that maybe the harms of trying to prevent those terminations would be worse than those terminations themselves. Okay, so I'm not taking a stand on that here, but being a consequentialist might help you think about what your position is. Okay. Um, on health insurance, it was a very, very simple example for the consequential approach. Sure, it's great for everybody to have health insurance, but if the government tries to subsidize it so that everyone has state-of-the-art health insurance, it becomes completely unaffordable, and therefore uh, it doesn't make sense. Discrimination, the consequential perspective, focuses on the fact that if we're trying to stop discrimination via the law, then we have to define it, and we have to do things about it. Otherwise, it's just words on a piece of paper. If you simply had a law that said, whenever someone is caught in the act of naked discrimination, there are emails, there are smoking guns that say, employer A explicitly discriminated, did not hire you know, some person X because of that person's race, gender, sexual identity, whatever. And in those cases, that employer can be punished. Okay? That might not be a very intrusive system, might not be very costly. It would catch only a teeny infinitesimal fraction of the possible discrimination. So in order to have a discrimination policy which really has some bite, you have to have government-imposed affirmative action. And libertarians would argue that the costs of that, the unintended consequences of that, are very large. And therefore, consequences would come down against government attempts to outlaw discrimination, even though libertarians are certainly opposed individually uh, to discrimination. OK, one, two more things to say about consequentialist approach. One of the things that appeals about it to me but not necessary to everyone, is that if you're a consequentialist, you can easily talk about the degrees of opposition to different policies. Okay? Drug prohibition versus a moderate syntax. I personally don't support moderate syntaxes for drugs or alcohol or anything. I think the tax code should treat every commodity the same way. Okay? We don't really know which things that people consume do harm to others, and therefore we might want to subject to higher tax rates. Maybe it's consuming marijuana or alcohol, but maybe it's watching too much late-night TV so you're sleepy when you drive on the highway and you kill people. Or maybe it's over-the-counter antihistamines, which people take for the common cold, which make them drowsy and things like that. Okay, so I, I would say we should be neutral. But if you ask me, is it better to have drug prohibition or a moderate syntax as a way to discourage drug use, it's utterly unambiguous. A moderate syntax will discourage drug use a little bit. That hurts people who are 
using drugs responsibly. It might cause a few people who use drugs irresponsibly not to do so. Okay? It won't generate a black market. It won't generate the racial profiling. It won't have all the huge negatives of prohibition. So we can absolutely rank different policies if we think about their consequences. Okay? Thinking about uh, welfare. A generous welfare state is something libertarians tend to oppose. Okay? Should they oppose a stingy welfare state? Well, many do, but they presumably should oppose it less because if you're only raising a small amount of taxes and only re redistributing a small amount of money, the negative effects you can have have to be lower, okay? and therefore, okay, it's at least worth considering. We can talk about which policies are relatively bad. Likewise, a negative income tax or a guaranteed basic income, uh, more, I guess more recent term, okay, versus the current mess of welfare and food stamps and Medicaid and 8 billion other policies to redistribute. If we could replace all of that with a guaranteed basic income that didn't cost any more, would that be a good thing? Sure, okay, we can think about that by being consequentialist, even though as libertarians we might oppose all of those things, okay, but certainly there's a ranking between the different uh, possibilities. Okay? Philosophical libertarianism, at least to me, does not as naturally produce this ability to rank, it does not as naturally produce the ability to take strong stands against some silly policies and not as strong stands against other policies. It tends to think of all interventions as equally bad. Okay? Maybe that's correct, but at a minimum, it's a super hard sell out there in the world. Okay? And so I think one appeal of consequential libertarianism is you can seem at least somewhat reasonable by conceding part of the arguments of people on the other side. Finally, talk about some difficult cases for consequential libertarianism, just again to illustrate sort of how it goes. Monetary policy. There's no compelling data or theory that says that one approach to monetary policy is better than another. Okay? That's my judgment of the evidence. Okay? There are arguments why a gold standard might be better than a central bank. There are arguments why no government intervention at all, so no gold standard, even just completely free banking would be even better than that. But if you look at the evidence, it's really hard to make a convincing case. So, the consequentialist approach allows libertarians to say in some of these cases, you know what, we're not sure. And I think that makes people think that you're at least a little bit, not a lot, but a little bit reasonable. Okay? Climate policy is similar. Libertarians don't have to take a stand on whether the planet is warming or not. We can focus on the consequentialist aspects. We can say, look, let's say you're right. The policy you're proposing is still stupid. The carbon tax I gave earlier. Okay, if Okay, the carbon tax is going to do what I said. It's going to cause businesses to move from places with high carbon taxes to places with low carbon taxes. And those places produce energy in a way that generates more emissions because it's more focused on coal. Then that policy is a bad idea, even if every single thing about the climate science is correct. Okay, so that's useful to think about. Okay. Um, employment discrimination, we discussed. So let me skip that uh, for the moment. Okay. Uh, financial regulation okay, is an interesting one to think about. Because it's a case where, in my judgment, any of the partial measures we're debating, like repealing Dodd-Frank, may have completely un unpredictable effects. A little bit of regulation, sorry, once you have a really messy, complicated system, taking away a little bit of that regulation okay, may make things better, but it may make things worse because of all sorts of unintended consequences. The only thing that's going to work well is repeal of all of that regulation. Okay, that is going back to free banking in Scotland in 1776. 
okay, but that okay, is not on the table. So it's a really messy, hard case for libertarians to talk about, but the consequentialist perspective at least allows to communicate okay, with other people. Okay? So message of that slide is, okay, consequentialism doesn't give you an answer to everything, but it gives you a basis to talk to people about even the messy situations. Okay, so I'm gonna stop in two seconds and take questions. Summarizing so far, consequential libertarianism says, choose policies based on their consequences. And at some level, of course, everybody agrees with that. That <laughs> would be hard to disagree. And yet there are these incredibly wide differences over policy. That is because of two possibilities. Uh, different, there's because of two possibilities. Um, either that we disagree on the science or we disagree on the values. What I'm gonna argue this afternoon will be two things. First, that the consequences are generally bad. That in fact, yes, there's room for disagreement about the science, there's room for disagreement about the impact of particular policies, but in fact, a huge range of policies have a large range of unintended bad effects, okay, and therefore there should be this strong presumption against the interventions. And second is that, of course, people have different values, okay, and because they have different values, Okay, you're going to have some room for disagreement on some policies. But in fact, for the most part, if you think about it the way that I will propose, whether you care about maximizing economic efficiency, whether you care about maximizing liberty or freedom, whether you care about equity somehow defined, it still should be the case that small government is the best. It still is, excuse me, the case that small government is best once you think about the actual consequences of attempts to promote things like equity or things other than liberty or economic. Um, okay, stop there and take questions. Thank you. Yes. Can you talk about uh, where would a consequentialist libertarian and a philosophical libertarian differ? On what cases would they be on opposite sides? I have one in mind. But. So I think they almost never differ. I'm not sure I know of any good examples. Um, and the reason is that I think that the philosophical principles have evolved as being the principles we like because they turn out to be very useful shorthands for all the negative consequences that come from intervention. So take a somewhat trivial example. Why do we think that prohibitions against killing are, generally speaking, a good thing? Because we think that in almost all cases, the consequences of someone killing another person are bad. Okay? And so we take that as sort of a given. Um, more generally, you can think of a, the principle of freedom, of liberty, okay, as being almost identical to the economic principle of letting people have more choices, letting people want to be more efficient in their actions. So there are different languages for describing the same thing. So I think they should get you to the same answers. And of course, they kind of have to be the same if they're coming to exactly the same conclusions. But, and that's my reconciliation. So maybe my follow-up. So the one I have in mind is smoking in restaurants. Because I think that's an easy one for a phil philosophical libertarian based on property rights of the restaurateur. But on the other hand, there's a lot more people who find smoking very annoying compared to the ones who like to smoke. And there are sort of positive consequences, even to restaurateurs who don't have to put up with smoking and, and all those negative consequences if they're forced to. So how about that? So I think the externalities are very, very small. I think that uh, the market was doing a perfectly fine job 
of initially having non-smoking sections for restaurants, which worked very imperfectly in some small restaurants, admittedly, but worked okay in bigger restaurants. One airline had adopted non-smoking policy, Northwest, uh, before there was ever a government prohibition on smoking on airplanes, which raises very similar issues. And um, more and more restaurants had gone smoke-free okay, long before anyone had banned them. So the market was responding to the demand. And economic efficiency says, if there's some people who like restaurants where smoking is allowed, it's efficient to allow them to have that. It helps their freedom, their liberty, to be able to choose that. And nobody's putting a gun to anybody's head and making them go to the other restaurants. We don't have laws about the, the percentage of restaurants that have to serve Thai versus Indian versus French and so on. Why can't the market sort out how many restaurants should be smoking or non-smoking? So I think you get exactly the same answer from a consequentialist and a philosophical on that question. Yes. Hi, um, my name is Brandon Nates. I'm a sophomore at CCU in Colorado. My question is, you said that the major purpose of government, the federal government, is national defense. And then later on, you said that in libertarian land, you would cut both the Department of Veterans Affairs and the Central Intelligence Agency. Uh -huh. So my question is, um, how do you propose we provide for the common defense well without taking care of our veterans and also without intelligence services? Thanks. Okay, so the Veteran Affairs one is this very mechanical kind of... Uh, wonky answer. It's just that you can provide for veterans and induce sufficient number of people to serve in the military by having an appropriate rate of pay and by providing them with vouchers to buy health care on the open market. You don't need a whole separate Department of Veterans Affairs. That's just completely kludgy for sort of techno-bureaucratic reasons. Okay? The CIA, okay, you don't need a CIA to have the national the, the, military conduct intelligence to try to figure out whether there are threats that might be coming. And the military does do that and did that long before there was a CIA. But the CIA has become this independent ent entity which keeps all sorts of secrets, which actively goes around trying to foment insurrection in certain places, overthrow dictators and things like that. So maintaining, gathering intelligence, okay, there's a role for that. I have some skepticism about how useful it ends up being in the end. But one could certainly defend in principle a role for the military to gather intelligence about potential threats, but you don't need the CIA to do that. Thank you. Yes. Hi. You said um, economics was the combination of one fact and one assumption, and the assumption was that people pursue the goals as best they can given the constraints, but um, there are some, there's quite a significant amount of people out there who um, don't really exhibit planned or rational behavior. For example, the rising middle class in the Chinese, they, they're not sophisticated investors, but they invest significant sums of money in the stock market, in shares, um, but um, that could distort the, the signals. Um, how does the CL approach take into account? Okay, so I'm not familiar with the Chinese investors, so let me broaden it a little bit. Um, there certainly is a school of thought known as behavioral economics or psychology and economics, which says that people are not necessarily these super rational, um, very sophisticated individuals who can calculate all the consequences and all the costs and benefits and all that. That's why I said they have goals and they pursue them rather than saying they you know, maximize utility in some super technical, fancy mathematical sense. The evidence is very clear that yes, there are plenty of deviations from this strict, hyper-rational person but they're relatively small, and still the main goal-seeking activities are still there. So yes, people care about equity, they care about envy, they sometimes get confused, they sometimes make mistakes, but still all of the evidence suggests that they are mainly trying to pursue the goals that they have, not quite as 
competently as this textbook model, but not in a way which fundamentally under, you know, undermines the perspective that I gave. Okay, okay. thank you. Yes. Um, one of your first slides stated that there was a consensus among libertarians on foreign policy. Now, about a month ago, I was uh, uh, at the Objectivist Conference. By definition, because the ones who don't agree with our view are not libertarians. Yeah. Well, the thing is, I was at the Objectivist Conference, and they have a, like, objectives have a totally different approach to that, I guess. And I see that the Cato uh, Institute gave us uh, a large amount of books, among which uh, Adler Schrock from Ayn Rand. So uh, in this case, would there be like a difference between maybe uh, the philosophical libertarianism, well, maybe not libertarianism in this case, and consequential libertarianism? Is there really a consensus on foreign policy among libertarians? So my statement is maybe a little strong. People who call themselves libertarians and do hold libertarian views on a range of issues, probably have a range of views on national defense stuff. In particular, the building was somewhat divided over the invasion of Iraq. Okay? It took a little discussion before it became clear that we thought that was a really big mistake. Ex ante, it's got easier and easier ex post um, to think it was a mistake. But I'll let others who are so, so you don't believe get into the, the internecine warfares and debates between objectivists. Don't believe in objectivists. the just war argument. Sorry, don't you, do you don't believe in the just war argument or the. I think if you're going to defend an intervention, you at a minimum have to show that its benefits to someone exceed its cost to all the people who benefit exceed its cost to all the people who pay costs. So the hard cases would be ones where you thought if the U.S. invaded some country and did some stuff. Okay, it would make that country much better off, but would have absolutely minimal direct or indirect effect on the U.S., but the cost would initially all be to the U.S. So should the U.S. use its resources to make some other place better off okay, via you know, its military? I think that's an uninteresting question because I can't imagine a case where it would actually occur. All the cases where we intervene, they're not just cost to us. There are no significant or long-term, indeed, there are huge costs to the places we invade. So then it's just a lose-lose, so you don't have to get into any philosophical debate about how do we weight the welfare of people in the rest of the world relative to ourselves. Similar thing comes up with immigration. Okay? Should we be allowing more immigration, knowing that's very good for people who want to come here, but allegedly is bad for the people who are already here? Okay? Should we be treating a poor person who's in Mexico better than we allegedly treat a poor person who lives in the United States, I think, again, it's sort of a false question because, in fact, the effects of immigration on the residents of the U.S. are, for the most part, strongly positive. So it's a win-win. It benefits the immigrants and it benefits the receiving country. Yes. Hello. Um, my name is Arena Casis. I'm a senior at Universidad Casa Grande in Ecuador. Um, my question is that given the unintended consequences of policies, um, some of which can only be seen after implementing that policy, how should we approach um, policy making? Well, I mean, the natural thing to say is just don't make new policies. <laughs> I mean, so first of all, we have lots and lots of policies. We have billions of policies that we argue are doing a lot more harm than good right now. So we focus on, first of all, repealing those. But with respect to new proposals, the fact that there could be these unintended consequences that you're not even going to see suggests that you should be extremely cautious, that there should be an especially high bar. Of course, at some point in some time or place, there's going to be something new that comes along 
that we don't have a good mechanism to deal with, and it's going to be reasonable to discuss some new intervention. But we should recognize that it may cost way more than we anticipate. And so even if it seems like a good idea now, maybe we shouldn't do it. And that's totally unsatisfying to the people who want to intervene. You know, and there are billions of situations where we can say, there's option A is bad, option B is really bad. Okay? And so our conclusion is the consequences perspective says, OK, we go with option A because it's less bad. But most people want to know there's option C that fixes everything. And resisting that is extremely hard. But in most cases, there's not option C. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Thank you for speaking us, to us today. Um, so I, I think a lot of uh, my concerns with the two kinds of libertarianism is that philosophical libertarian com libertarianism comes to certain endpoints. Where, like, for example, with the idea of like the invasion to Iraq, we see that like um, invading or encroaching upon another nation's sovereignty is bad because like we're reducing their agency or sovereignty as a nation and as a people. Um, but your libertarianism, your libertarianism seems to focus more on, on a path to get to these conclusions without actually giving the conclusions themselves. Um, so for example, with a, uh, an example you used earlier with the Iraq war, you said it was like a small chance that, that Saddam Hussein had nuclear weapons. But had I valued these things differently, I could fundamentally be a consequentialist libertarian and understand that the possibility that he has nuclear weapons is so great that I value that above and think that intervention is necessary. How do you reconcile these two kind of opinions here? So I absolutely agree that there are going to be cases where reasonable people are going to come to somewhat different perspectives. You know, central banking, Fed versus a gold standard, okay? um, certain kinds of financial regulation, as I discussed a little bit. And you know, maybe, let us say Iraq, take Afghanistan. In the case of Afghanistan, right after 9-11, when it seemed unambiguous that we had been attacked, okay, it seemed unambiguous that we knew who had done the attacking, we knew where these people were. So that was pretty close to the standard self-defense okay, answer. It seemed as though this was someone who could be an ongoing threat to the US, so in terms of uh, protecting ourselves in the future, going after Osama bin Laden. Okay. But you could also have argued that if we thought through what was likely to happen, is we'd go in there, we wouldn't really capture them right away, we'd end up being nation builders there, we'd be stuck there for how long this has been now, uh, 13 years, huge expense, the country is at least as big a mess as it was before we went in there, we shouldn't even have gone into Afghanistan, never mind Iraq. But people were going to disagree, and reasonable people were going to disagree. I think that any, rational, any perspective has to accept that. I don't think that... Be, the philosophical perspective can give you an answer to every single question either. Okay? It's going to have to accept that there's different people's agencies, there's unknowns about whose agency is going to be affected or not, and so therefore it's not going to give us an answer everywhere else either. Thank you again. Yes. Hi. Um, so one of the federal powers that I noticed that wasn't on your uh, list in libertarian land was the Interstate Commerce Clause. Uh -huh. um, and I know the Interstate Commerce Clause has been like misused a bunch of times in uh, Supreme Court cases as like a power grab for the federal government. But my understanding of it is that uh, the clause itself was made to guarantee the free flow of like goods and services. Um, so in libertarian land, how would you protect uh, the free flow of goods and services uh, against states that are using protectionist or obstructionist policies? So two answers. One, I guess, no, sorry, one answer. I think looking back, 
it might have been better if we hadn't had the interstate commerce clause in the first place because it was only rarely used to maintain free flow of commerce amongst the states and it has been mainly used since the 1930s as an excuse to let the federal government do absolutely anything it wants. Okay? Uh, if we had never had such a clause in the Constitution at all, I think that competition between the states would have kept the tariffs and other protections that they engage in relatively modest. And so we probably, just from a strictly economic perspective, it was probably unnecessary. Borders of states are super porous. You know, there's so many different ways you can go in and out. And if one state imposes crazy tariffs or other things, some other state's going to say, forget it. You know, come, come live here and do business here. You'll, everything will be cheaper. So probably we just should skip it. And that way it couldn't be used for all the bad things as it's been an excuse for in the last 80 years. Thank you. Um, my time just went, is going up now, so something's not right. I th assume someone's going to stop me when I'm supposed to stop, so. Uh, yeah, I'm Thaya Knight, and for those who don't know, I do financial regulation uh, studies here at Cato. So I just wanted to unpack your statement about financial regulation, as you might have guessed, um, a little bit. Because it seems, if I understand your argument correctly, that because there's so much regulation, it becomes harder to make the argument about having less regulation because we have all of these people depending on the regulation as it, as it exists. So are you arguing that there's a paradox here where if we can just kind of like pile as much regulation on as possible, it makes it a lot harder to argue for taking it away. It, it's kind of like the spotted owl trees. Yeah, it's like there's, there's all sorts of interactions between one regulation and another. So if you just change one without being able to change all the others, you might get even worse effects. Um, the sort of classic example is capital requirements. Okay, so saying that banks have to have a certain amount of capital, which means they're less likely to fail because they have more there's more equity, there's more there to protect them in a case they suffer negative shocks. Sounds all very well and good, but then you have to be able to measure capital. And what happened was that the way the capital was defined for measurement purposes was it included all sorts of things which in fact weren't safe assets, they were super risky assets. Okay, so now people are saying, well, we just need higher capital requirements, which on the one hand kind of makes sense because that was part of the problem. On the other hand, that will just become an excuse for smart MBAs to innovate around those new capital requirements, and so it probably won't do any good. So it's just such an interconnected mess. I mean, think of you know some complicated thing that people used to make with those toothpicks or whatever, that you could build up these huge high structures. If you pick one out without knowing everything it's connected to, the whole structure will just collapse. So yes. My next paper will argue just burn it all down. <laughs> right, we have to repeal it all. I mean, it really, and, and the few cases we know where we didn't have any of it, it worked pretty well. Thank, as George Selgin has written about extensively. Yes. Sure. Um, so it seems in a lot of public policy debates today, um, a tendency made by people who argue for intervention is that certain groups of people, due to the facts of their birth, uh, other aspects of their identity, social structures, deserve, say, a higher weight in terms of the costs or the, the benefits of a certain policy as incurred to them than the costs uh, incurred to other people. Um, in terms of the you know, consequentialist approach, whether you agree with that thinking, you know, partially, not at all, or a good amount, um, how do you, you know, how do you, would you respond to that line of thinking, lest uh, someone like yourself and a typical Bernie Sanders supporter just simply talk past each other? Okay, so that's a really, really, really crucial question. Because we're going to inevitably take a particular policy, have this whole set of consequences. And 
I'm not saying, I'm not proposing or offering any one way of aggregating up all those consequences. I'm saying that every individual is entitled to look at that set of consequences and focus for the moment on a case where we all agree on exactly what the consequences are. It's just how we value the different people who get the positives versus the negatives or how we value one consequence versus another. I'm saying that everyone should look at those consequences and get to decide, and everyone is entitled to a view. You might, might, might think it's crazy, but everyone is entitled to their view. And to me, that's, in some ways, that's more libertarian, to say there's not some right principle that we're going to impose on everything. We're just going to let everybody have a decision about which sets of consequences they prefer. My empirical statement is that in a huge fraction of cases, if I can get the Bernie Sanders people to agree with me on what the consequences are of the policies they're proposing, they'll actually agree with me on what the right policies are. And so it's an empirical statement. It's not a theorem. It's not derived from a, a, from a principle. It's saying if Bernie Sanders supporters realize that paying for everyone to go to college okay, would destroy the country, they'd probably back off because they don't want to destroy the country. If they realize that redistributing in the amount that he proposes would completely crash the economy, they would back off because they realize that that's not something they want to do. So it's convincing them that about what the consequences really are instead of them having these crazy you know, fantasy land images of what would happen under their policy proposals. Thank you. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. Hi. Okay. Yes. Uh, so you touched on this a little bit earlier with an earlier question, but I wanted to follow up. Given the reality that uh, us libertarians are in the minority, you know, we're working within a two-party system here, and we're not going to be able to get everything we want all of the time. You gave the example of gay marriage, where why should the government be involved in marriage at all? Well, we are, so then, therefore, we should treat everyone equally. Given that, what do you think is the appropriate role, in your opinion, for policymakers, you know, our uh, Rand Pauls, Gary Johnsons, and Justin Amashes, who are working in government, who are going to be in the minority most of the time? What's their role in the political process, or what's their role in educating people? <laughs> well, just what, what do you think? What do you think their goals should be as policymakers who are in the minority? How should? Well, they're not policymakers think? anymore. They're politicians. I think their goal as politicians should be to educate. Should be to convince people that libertarians have a different, interesting, and thoughtful perspective. I don't even have to convince a ton of people. They just have to let people to get people to think about it and, and, and listen to it a little bit. That would be huge progress. In like 15, no, okay. Okay, grab me after. Thank you very much.